Today's episode is brought to you by Arrowhead Coffee. Canadian veteran-owned Arrowhead Coffee. Coffee that inspires and supports veterans, first responders, and their families. To order your delicious Arrowhead Coffee, visit arrowhead.coffee. Now that's not arrowhead.com or arrowhead.ca, it's arrowhead.coffee on the Googleizer. And save 10% with discount code OPTR10. That's Oscar, Papa, Tango, Romeo, 10. And get yours today. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling on the very first time ever using my fancy new video getup. <laughs> so uh, we are rolling with Sid Gravel, and I'm going to have to fix the screen here because it says Sylvia, and he is clearly not Sylvia. So just bear with me so I can fix that. Oh my gosh, unbelievable. Of course, I couldn't do it pre-show because it wouldn't let me. There we go, fixed. All right, here we so, go. so yeah. really glad to have you on here, Sid. There's um, so many different types of peer support, and I hear from different people doing different things. Yeah, what I do is peer support, and they're completely different. How uh, we do it with our peer support group is um, one type of peer support, but also there are other types that uh, I've participated in and that have been done for me and with me. So let's start there. Um, actually, I want to start somewhere else. Let's start with when you started this in peer support, because you are a pioneer of this science. Yeah, well, I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, certainly, it, it, it was a reaction to a need back in uh, 1987. Uh, we, uh, My psychologist and I started talking about, you know, would it be a good idea and would I be comfortable with talking with other members of uh, the police service then uh, who had also been involved in fatal incidents that were work-related, whether it was uh, taking the life of a suspect or uh, being injured by a suspect as a result of trying to get your job done. So we've had, we had officers who had been shot and survived and we had officers like myself who had shot suspects on the job and went through the whole process of being investigated, etc. So I, I thought it was a good idea to, to be able to talk to somebody of like mind and like experience because it's very confusing and you really feel like you're by yourself. We all do at some point until we meet other people of like mind and like experience. We feel like we're the only ones going through it. And that's very understandable. Um, so in January of 1988 was the first time I met with the, uh, six other police officers that were involved in situations such as mine. And we just started sharing very quietly, very slowly and very respectfully letting each person speak 
what it was that they were living with and having a hard time living through as a result of the experience that they shared, it was fairly common. And it was really quite revealing to me how comfortable I was sharing thoughts and feelings with these officers that I was not able to share with even my own spouse, uh, simply because it was uh, work-related and it was beyond the pale of what I do when I was not wearing the uniform. So uh, we kept doing it. And that, that group, by the way, still exists today in 2021. They're, they still exist. Uh, that were in the original group are retired now. In fact, three have passed away of natural causes uh, after retirement. But um, the group still exists in terms of supporting officers throughout Canada uh, who have been involved in uh, fatal uh, incidents that are work-related and how to survive that, including the investigation that you have to survive, etc. So uh, back in 2012, when I uh, had an opportunity, I retired in 2009. In 2012, I decided to put pen to paper, and I wrote my first book called 56 Seconds, and it was a reveal to people uh, that I had PTSD that I had never revealed to before, including my two sons. That must have been difficult. Uh, It was. Uh, It was uh, one of those situations where I want to explain to you why I behaved the way I did and why I was the way I was. And uh, so I shared that in in the book called 56 Seconds. It's called an airport read because it's one of those things that is, you know, you can read it, uh, you know, in uh, at the airport in the time that you're waiting for your plane to come in. It's uh, about 60 pages. But it was the first time that I was able to publicly reveal that I had been involved in uh, peer support and what it looked like. And at that time, we didn't have any formal training still available to us other than what we might have gotten dealing uh, as a member of critical incident stress management, which I took, you know, the, the Mitchell model. But beyond that, we didn't really have much at all. So yeah, I've been doing that since then. And still to this day, I volunteer to be with this group, and it's called Robin's Blue Circle. Uh, I still volunteer as a frontline officer, even retired, uh, to those, those officers who get involved in, in shooting incidents or stabbings that happen that are work-related. What's your opinion of CISD? Is it, um, are, are you a fan of it? So here's the thing with the critical incident stress. If it's managed properly, I think that it, it, it has a lot of value and a lot of merit. And I'll give you an example of why it sometimes falls short. Um, I know of an officer who uh, was uh, actually was a firefighter. I know of a firefighter who went through a very traumatic incident. And the fire chief wanted to do the right thing for him and his people. So he brought in a team a critical incident uh, debrief team from another organization borrowed them for the sake of doing a debriefing with the firefighters uh, in relation to that incident. So then the team left. 
There was no 30-day follow-up, 60-day follow-up, 90-day follow-up. There was no medical professional involved to, in case somebody was being triggered. There was no sharing of resources uh, beyond what they had to find for themselves because the outside team didn't know what resources were available to them. So it, when, when I look at that, I feel that it has a terrible image and it might have done more harm than good. When I look at others who do it very well, where they do, okay, we're going to debrief the incident, we're going to do a 30-day follow-up, 60-day follow-up, 90-day follow-up, making sure that you're taking care of the resources, etc., it works very well. There are, however, limitations to even the best of the models because a lot of what they do is very specific to the incident. It's incident-driven reaction. Peer support, in, in the purest form, is not necessarily specific to an incident. You may be having a family breakup that is affecting you at work. You're not going to go to critical incident stress debriefing for uh, a family breakup. For most part, it's work-related that they're going to debrief. So if you've got a peer support program, there's a good chance that you'd have somebody that would be able to support you through what it's like to go through a family separation. I can see one of the challenges with CISD, uh, critical incident stress debriefing, is that many times symptoms, uh, if you are injured, the symptoms don't show up for months later, sometimes longer. That's right. So if you do it right off off the bat and there's no follow-up, well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, so one it, of the, it's good to help decompress, but. One of the things, for example, uh, that's been discussed is rather than do critical incident stress debriefing, if you can't do it right for, for what it can do for you in that short period of time, uh, is psychological first aid. Right, So where you take uh, an incident that happens at work and rather than debrief on the incident, you can debrief slightly, you know, technically, did we have enough people there, enough equipment, et cetera. That's fine. But in terms of uh, debriefing uh, to an incident, uh, you can have what is called a psychological first aid where you offer the group su- support, you offer them the opportunity to meet uh, further uh or one-on-one if they don't want to meet in the group. Uh, You review the event possibly for just basic details of what occurred. Uh, You offer the opportunity to share their experiences if if they want to, not as required. Uh, Provide handouts on what trauma symptoms would look like and discuss what they could expect from the treatment being attentive and listening, consistently available if they want to be reached out to, uh, understand and normalize the uh, trauma reactions and initialize some initial coping skills. So anyways, that to me sometimes, like for, for that fire department, that would have been probably a better way to handle it. It seems though too, even with mental health first aid, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to take my course in that. There still needs yeah. to be the follow-up. What would you say is the yeah. difference between mental health first aid and CISD? It seems fairly similar. Well, it's it's fairly similar, but mental health first aid doesn't necessarily always have to be incident-related. So there's that. Now, you're quite right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I've seen, I've 
approached officers at an incident and they've said, said, I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't need any peer support. And I'd say, okay, uh, just remember that I'm here for you and, you know, follow up every now and again. And then uh, five or six years later, they'll call and say, can I talk to you? And, uh, you know, I, I'll talk to them about what it is they're going through today, but that's related to what happened five to six years earlier. And, uh, that's where peer support is not limited by a time frame. You're you're only uh, you're available and only limited by the fact that they reached out to you or that you've been able to connect with them where they might not have reached out to you. When you hear the phrase "time heals all wounds," how do you respond to that? I think what time does is it makes you wiser in your ability to live with the wound. Uh, that's how I feel. I mean, I oftentimes describe my uh, my uh, trauma as uh, a, a pack sack on my back. Mm. And uh, I didn't have that pack sack until I went through the traumatic event of taking a life that I didn't expect I was going to be taking uh, until it happened. And w- instead of ignoring the incident and trying to pretend that it didn't exist, I came to the realization that the struggle of trying to make it disappear and pretend it didn't happen was more unhealthy than accepting the fact that I now had a pack sack on my back that I carried around that made me a different person. So I'm comfortable now with the fact that I carry a pack sack on my back. Time has has allowed me to learn how to live with that extra weight. I can't get rid of it. I can never pretend it never happened, but I've learned to live with it. And I've actually learned to smile again. And I've learned to be pretty positive about what I'm facing. Does it take away the pain of what happened? Never. But does it make me stronger in my ability to move forward and have hope and some pleasure in life uh, with an extra weight on my back? Yeah, I've learned to do that. So time does not necessarily for me heal all wounds. Time allows you the opportunity to learn how to live with the wound. How did you change? What changed about you uh, post-trauma? Yeah, so there were several things. One of the things that uh, happened after post-trauma is the immediate uh, uh, signs were anxiety. I was was very anxious about everything uh, that was work-related and family-related. I mean, I was under investigation for manslaughter. That's that's the seriousness of, you know, uh, taking a life when you're wearing a uniform is automatically you're under investigation for potentially being charged criminally for manslaughter. And it's a very difficult thing. You know, to accept when you go to work as a police officer and you're so proud of the fact that you're wearing a uniform for the betterment of your community and the next thing you know, your sergeant's taking your gun away from you and you're being told that you're under investigation. The good guy becomes uh, the bad guy. All right, That's how it feels. Exactly. I mean, you go to work feeling good and you come home, you know, with a criminal investigation pending upon you and you're kind of wondering how the hell did that happen so quickly? So, you know, there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of anger. I really felt that I was being betrayed by the organization. They were took, they were putting out news media flashes about the shooting, and they weren't even warning me that they were going to be putting those news media flashes out there. So I was 
I was watching on CBC News and on the radio. I was listening to people talk about my shooting, and I didn't even know they were going to be talking about that kind of stuff. There was releases being done by the department that I was not even forewarned about. So it was very difficult uh, for me that way, a lot of anger. And then what happened was, over time, I started to realize that I was afraid to make decisions. Because the last time I made a decision, somebody died. And I started to wonder about, okay, when are you going to do that again? And the, the thing is, is I kept, I went back to work, Mark, but here's what was interesting I discovered. It was easier to be at work with uh, suffering from that kind of trauma than it was to be at home. Because at work, there were policies, procedures, guidelines, and I was surrounded by A-type personalities that would make the decision for me faster than I would if I hesitated. So I was very safe there. But if I came home, I had to make decisions about what bills to pay, what, what activities to get involved in with my kids, uh, how to keep my spouse happy for that evening that I was back home at the end of the shift or that day if I worked night shift. So going home required of me to make decisions when I was exhausted making decisions and didn't want to make any. Did anybody pick up that you were struggling? My wife did because uh, the only way I was able to fall asleep was to put down a bottle of vodka. Uh, and uh, uh, I, sometimes I'd go, to, I'd go to work and I was still feeling the effects of what I drank the night before. Anybody at work uh, uh, put their hand on your shoulder and say, hey, better to be judged by uh, or carried, <laughs> judged by 12 than carried by six, that old nugget? Anybody even do that? No, they, they didn't do it in, in relation to the trauma. What, what happened is, see, and this is where it became difficult for me, is a lot of the guys were feeling and wanting to share with me how proud they were that I made a decision that saved, potentially saved another officer's life. Uh, I reacted to an action that threatened another officer, and I, sh- I took the suspect up. I shot him. Uh, before he was able to do what I thought he was going to do, which it turns out he wasn't going to do. And that was what really hurt me there. But a lot of people were coming up and patting me on the back and saying, ah, good good job, you know, because imagine if he had had done what he was going to do or what you thought he was going to do. You know, we wouldn't have, uh, you know, Mark here anymore. As they were patting me on the back to try and make me feel like a hero and good, they weren't realizing how much I was crying and hurting inside. And I couldn't show them that. So I'd go home and I'd cry there. And that's when I'd hit the bottle uh, because I didn't want anybody at work to know that I didn't appreciate them supporting me by being a hero. Taking, taking a life is not cool. Um, as a Army veteran, I've had... A few times people come up to you, so you ever killed anybody? As if it's, you know, cool. But I think it's even more difficult as a police officer because you're in the sheepdog mode. You're not in, you're not a soldier. You're not in combat mode. There's not, uh, the person over there isn't the enemy. Uh, They may be a threat, but they're supposed to be the people that you're the sheepdog for. So I can see the moral injury being even heavier. I'm lucky enough to have not taken a life, but I sure as hell have a lot of friends that have, and yeah. uh, and multiple, multiple lives. Um, but it's easier to justify in a war zone because they're shooting at you, 
and uh, and there's and there's lines. You're not part of their community. You're the person visiting that community, and it's a different world. But when it's happening in your own world, in your own community, I can really see how that would be a very different experience altogether. It is, and I'm I'm glad that you're going down that path in our discussion because I happen to uh, be in the staff sergeant in charge of recruiting for several years with the Ottawa Police Service. And I did hire a lot of uh, military personnel who wanted to transition from the military into policing uh, to be able to stay home and to move forward. And what was interesting, Mark, is that it didn't take them long to uh, get uncomfortable with the fact that they were never going to leave the zone in which the battle was going on. It's not another country. It's It's the community in which you live in. The person who I shot had a family that was long-standing in the community. The family was a good family. The son just happened to be the kind of individual who did what he did. It was not, it was not normal behavior that was exhibited by the rest of the family. And to this day, I still live in this community with a family whose son I took away from them whose brother I took away from them. Um, I don't know who they are, but I had a fear of who they were in terms of my own children growing up in this community, possibly with their children, and them finding out that I was the father, uh, I was the father of these children that took their brother or uncle. And, you know, these are these are things that complicate uh, police work, when you get involved in these kinds of fatal uh, situations, this is where police work gets very complicated uh, for us compared to being in a theater where you can be extracted. How do you think the police community is doing right now with all this uh, stuff in the States with defund police? It's actually traveled up here now. And yeah. I mean, it's always been a thankless job. Like always, it's never not been a thankless job. But now it's more thankless than ever before and more hostile than ever before. There's entire segments of the population that are anti-cop now. How, how's everybody doing and dealing with this? Yeah, so this is the thing that I, I have to, I really want to be careful about because uh, I'm not on the street anymore. And I knew even when I was in charge of recruiting, I knew that it took six months of working in an office for me to realize that if they put me back on the street again, it would be an entire relearning mm. situation. So I've been gone a few years, so I, I would be, you know, really uncomfortable commenting on what it's like for them today. But if I look at it from the perspective of what I remember it to be, I think it would be very, very difficult for me, uh, experiencing what they're experiencing today, considering the policing that I grew up with and the kind of policing that I did. You know, at the time uh, that I was doing policing, I would park my car at the entrance to a project uh, in the city, and I would walk through the project uh, very comfortably, chat with people sitting on the front lawn or their front stoop or whatever, uh, and I'm not so sure now with the, you know, the activity of the gangs that are going on coming from some of these areas 
that police officers are capable or able to do that kind of community policing, for lack of a better word. So I think it's very different for sure. And it's got to be heartbreaking because one of the things I enjoyed the most was walking through the community after parking my cruiser in between calls. There's all kinds of peer support groups. Um, in ours, we have, it's, it's mostly military, but we do have some RCMP members because they fall on, uh, under D&D. Yep. Um, but what I have found, and I, I'd l- love to, to hear your um, take on it, what I've found is that we all speak a very similar language. So I can relate easily to cops. I've never been a cop. I went to police college and then realized I didn't know I had PTSD, but I knew I didn't trust myself. I, uh, I often say, it's like, you know, I'm pretty sure I could end up punching an old lady in the face or something really, really bad. So I, I better not go down this road any further. <laughs> and um, uh, so I decided not to pursue policing and also had heart surgery in 99, which I took as serendipity. I took it as a sign. It's like, yeah, I better not do that. I'm going to do something dumb and, and end up getting fired. But um, either way, with all these different peer support groups, there's some very, very specific ones. Like there's ones for paramedics, there's ones for cops. There, but uh, I, I feel that first responders and military speak a similar language in that it can, it can work. How important is that cultural competence in a peer support group? So there's a variety of, uh, of uh, experiences that will lead some people to be more comfortable uh, meeting with people who have walked in their shoes. Uh, and, you know, when it comes to peer support between police and military, you know, when we start talking about trying to live with the experiences that we have there's a the dynamics are very close it's a little bit more difficult i find when you're dealing with the dynamics of life and death uh when dealing with your decision makes the difference between life and death when you're dealing with a paramedic or a firefighter who don't have the use of power within their uniform. If somebody dies in front of them, it's not because they uh, put some sort of effort into potentially taking that life. It's because things happened that prevented them from doing the good that they wanted to do. Yeah, they didn't take so the life. They just couldn't save it. They, that's exactly it. Yeah, that makes so sense. So I'm very, I'm very careful personally uh, to sometimes look at the background of the people that I'm sharing my concerns with so that I'm not dealing with something that they're going to look at me and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because if I'm going to share something with a peer group, I better be understood. I need to know that I'm going to be understood. Yeah, that's a really good delineation. So I would say that cops and military could go hand in hand uh, better. It depends on the trade. I mean, not everybody was combat arms. Um, Right. You know, so if it's uh, similar, if it's a medical trade in the military and and paramedics, well, that makes perfect sense. But I think that's a really smart delineation. Um, Our job, well... As an infantry soldier, my job was violence, period. That was the whole job. The whole job was violence. You know, my job was to uh, uh, to take control or or to terminate people. That's the job. In, in police, part of the job is violence. 
you know, and it's, uh, yeah. but it's supposed to be non-lethal violence. Our job is lethal violence. You know, non-lethal doesn't happen a whole lot. Although I was on a peacekeeping tour, which is a lot closer to policing because it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah you can go lethal, but uh, you better have a goddamn good excuse for it. So yeah. that's, uh, that's a lot more similar. So to that point, you know, one of the things that I would do, because of my experience, I would lecture to the recruits. And what I would do is I'd say, in this hand here, I want you to imagine all the competencies and capabilities and skills required of a social worker. In this hand here, I want you to look at all the competency, skills, and abilities of a soldier. And in between both of them, you have a police officer that has to have both of these together, merged together. And let me give you an example of a call that defines my example very well. You're going to a domestic dispute. The husband has beaten the crap out of the wife, punched her in the face, all that. By the time you arrive, she looks like a bloody mess. And you immediately put the husband under arrest, and it's a battle. He's going to fight you tooth and nail. So you're a real Donnybrook on the kitchen floor getting the handcuffs on him and the backup comes in and everybody's pretty solid at making sure that this guy gets in handcuffs and gets out. So you're a soldier now. But as you get the guy in handcuffs and hand him over to your partners and turn to the spouse to be able to tell her what's happening now, she takes a, a, a frying pan and tries to hit you over the head with it. Because now you're taking away the only bread and butter that comes into that family. And she's scared now. She's got children, and the only income coming in is the guy that just beat her up. So I've got to be a social worker now. Just like that. And that is a skill that is very hard to get if you're trained this way or that way. You have to have both merging. And that's why I say to people who become police officers, don't define yourself as being involved in a war in the community. Don't define yourself as being out there just helping community. Because the truth of the matter is, if you think all you're going to do is help people, then you're going to be shocked by the time, for the first time when you have to actually take force on somebody. And if you think that the only thing you have to do is be forceful, then you're going to be in shock when all the complaints come in about the fact that you just didn't take the time to listen to somebody. Yeah. You're not Batman and you're not Mother Teresa. You're, you, you got to put it together. Yeah, exactly. That becomes very difficult to live with too, right? Because you're always pulling back a little bit of your soldier in you to be the social worker when you wish you could be the soldier 100%. <laughs> you know? Well, it's simpler. There's a threat, neutralize it. It's it, it's more simple that way. But it's yeah, and, you know, a it, lot more complex and policing. Yeah, exactly. And all due respect, Mark, right? I mean, it, it has its place. Uh, but I find that some of the officers that we have, especially if they come with a military background, that's the thing that they'll get in trouble with the most right at first is if they're not careful, uh, especially when you get into that mode where you better not think and just lean on your training. Let's swing back to um, peer support. One of the questions that uh, uh, I'm just dying to ask you, or what are some of the different types and models for peer support? 
Yeah, so most of us and the, the peer support that you and I are talking about is what is, is known as a friendship model of peer support, right? This buddy system, one-on-one, we've got a common denominator, we can have a conversation, or you can have a clubhouse group of people that get together and, you know, they, they spend time chatting just uh, in a friendly environment uh, with people of like mind, like experience. Uh, you know, not necessarily going into the details of somebody's traumatic event. I don't think I appreciate actually going into the details of a traumatic event as much as I appreciate what somebody what somebody is struggling with to try and get, you know, better. So, and I, I say that because sometimes I go to a conference and somebody stands up as a speaker on peer support and by the time they finish talking, I'm sweating bullets because they went into so much color and graphic detail about what the, what scared them or what traumatized them that I'm feeling it. Yeah. And then I can't even hear anything further because I've been traumatized again. Do you, do you like, tend to have that as a rule? In, in our group, uh, we call it war porn. And it's, exactly. it's right off the No war porn. We don't get into yeah. the, to the nitty gritty. You can broad yeah. stroke it. You know, it's like th- this is in general what happened, but yeah. the focus is on how this affects me. Yeah. So that to that point, you're exactly right, and I, I have used that terminology in the past myself, so I, I agree with you. And the other thing is is that, uh, you know, like, for example, people say, so what, you, what happened to you? I said, well, I was involved in the shooting incident, and it was fatal, and I was – I was devastated by it. And then I go on to say, but here's what, the th- here's all the things I did to make myself feel better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I developed a self care plan and as the self care plan fell into place, which involved meditation, good eating habits, good sleeping habits, good exercise. As that fell into place, I started to feel positive again about life and growth and moving forward. And then the next thing you know, I was smiling a lot and uh, actually could tell a joke and laugh about it, you know, which I hadn't done for years. And I stopped being angry at the world because I realized that the only person that's hurt when I'm angry is myself because everybody else has moved on, right? So those are the kinds of... So that's the friendship model. When, when you go to a friend and say, how did you do it? How did you get to the point to, that you're smiling now? Because I'm having a hard time getting there. So as a buddy... Share what it was that you did in order to get there. I don't want to be told what to do. I'll do my own thing. But tell me how you did it so maybe I can learn from that. So there's that self-help mutual peer support, which is, you know, could be organized. Uh, You could have the clubhouse walking center kind of thing where it's specific to that purpose. Or you could have the one-on-one friendship group so that's three types of of peer support the other kind of peer support is something that you and i experienced i didn't share this with you mark earlier but i just went through heart surgery in 2019 so uh, open heart surgery it's scary uh, as hell yeah i had uh i had my aortic artery replaced by a carbon fiber one oh cool yeah, so I tell people I'm not exactly the ten million dollar man, but about three hundred thousand dollars worth. You know. Just tell them you're a cyborg because that's cool. <laughs> exactly. So it, for that that kind, of, that's the clinical care peer supports. That's when the professionals are involved, right? So you're going to formalize intention, you know, intentional peer support that's run by a clinician, right? So with specific purposes of getting conversations going a certain way to help the clients uh, move forward workplace peer support formalized workplace peer support 
is structured in a way that here's the kind of things that we will do and the stages we will go through to support our members through very difficult situations. And that's, you know, recognized as formalized. And then the friendship model has the informal peer support approach to things. So they need to learn how to work together. We can talk about that a little bit more. Then you've got the community clinical setting where you go to the, you know, the West Carlton Medical Center to talk about, you know, what depression. Right, so you have a clinical uh, uh, perspective on things, and of course, then you've got the the, the uh, kind of mental health system-based peer support that helps you go through. You know, I went through uh, the recovery, the heart surgery recovery program for eight weeks, right, to make sure that what's it like for you now that you've had open heart surgery. You know, here's what you're going to go through for the next eight weeks, and then after eight weeks, you're done. Right. Yeah, no that, that wasn't even offered to me in 1999 when I uh, got cracked <laughs> open. <laughs> the first time I did a bench press after having had heart surgery, boy, I tell you, I was so afraid of cracking my chest open after that. But anyways, yeah. Well, yeah. you can hear the cracking and the popping for years after, you know, <laughs> you, you go to stretch and there's all kinds of stuff going on. You got all the wires in your sternum. Yeah. So, so what's interesting about the different types and the spectrum of peer support in the conversation that we're having is that up until about 2014, the whole friendship side of it, where you, what we can do for each other as buddies was not recognized within the medical profession, within mm-hmm. the mental health profession, as having much value. Uh, and uh, then over time, uh, it was recognized as having great value as long as we recognize boundaries uh, that we had, right? It's not for me to discuss your medicine. It's not for me to discuss what type of therapy you should be getting. That's for the professionals to decide. But it's for me to share with you how good the therapy was for me. If you want to try that kind of a therapy with your clinician, that's up to you and your clinician. But uh, I went through this kind of therapy. It worked well for me. If you haven't discussed it with your clinician, you may want to discuss it if you're not pleased with what you're getting now. And that's where the parameters and the boundaries have to be respected. I had Kim Barthel on the show earlier on, somewhere around the 20 to 30 episode mark uh, over a year ago. And Kim, when I asked her about the efficacy of peer support and how important it is, she says it is the most important thing done correctly. Yeah. It's also a super sensitive area. You could screw it up and you could do great harm, <laughs> great harm exactly. and cause injury yeah. by screwing it up by being, and it's so mean when I say this, but by being a douchebag by accident. Yeah. There's so many yeah. well-intentioned um, uh, peer supporters out there that really screw it up and because they, yeah. they don't know the rules and they don't know that what they're doing is causing harm. It's But coming from a good place though, um, let's talk about some of the don'ts of peer support. What would you say are the top three don'ts that people should avoid? Well, I think uh, one of the things that I, I think we need to be clear on is nobody likes to be told what to do. Mm. Uh, so one of the things that I'm very careful with regards to people approaching me uh, with uh, in peer support is, uh, you know, uh, Sid, what should I do? You know, you tell me what to do. Uh, first off, I never had anybody ask me that. But secondly, uh, sometimes when you try to help people, you say, you should do this. <laughs> when I hear somebody say, you should do this, I just sort of cringe a little bit. Say, oh, my God, 
How do you know that they should do that? Everybody's journey is so independent, right? So the best thing you can do is say, this is what worked for me. I'm not suggesting it's going to work for you, but you ask me why I'm smiling today. I smile because I did this. And from there, you can decide whether you want to do that. So a don't is not telling people what to do because if you do and it doesn't work, you own it. Nobody likes unsolicited advice. Well, (laughs) I've got a friend that is the king of unsolicited advice and it comes from a good place, but, uh, and he still keeps doing it. So I have to small dose him. Love him. Got a small dose him. That, 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 uh, that unsolicited advice, it's got to be permission based. Absolutely. The other thing is too, is that one of the things that I'm very careful of is I I hear this quite often, uh, especially when uh, people reach out to me from the community who are looking for peer support and they'll say, well, this is what happened to me. And I know what you went through was shooting somebody and my trauma was not as bad as that. And I say, Oh my God, don't minimize your trauma. The trauma Olympics, I call it. Yeah, don't minimize it, right? Everybody's trauma is their trauma. Whatever got you to the point where you're hurting is the issue that is irrelevant to me. What's relevant to me is that you're hurting. And let's talk about some of the things um, that help me. And maybe in, in sharing those with you, it'll help you understand as well. You know, so don't minimize. Those are one, two things. The other thing is, is uh, you know, um, don't uh, don't personalize it, right? You know, don't make it your story. It's their story. Mm. And uh, respect them for the fact that they have their story and their life that they're trying to live through. So tell me more about that. How do people personalize it so that they uh, make it about themselves when it's supposed to be about somebody else? What does that sound yeah, like? Yeah, so sometimes it's just how you say it. You know? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Oh, my God, you know. I don't think I, I wouldn't have done that. Right? <laughs> or this one time at band camp when it happened to me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or when it happened to my friend, it's like, hey, this isn't your story, dude. Stop. Exactly. You see, and this is the thing, you know, you finally got somebody who says, I'm going to take a chance today. I'm going to share with somebody something that I've never shared before. And, and it's taking a lot of courage for me to do that frankly and i'm in the middle of the story and you're saying oh you should hear what i went through and you just cut me right off right because you're making it about yourself now you're personalizing so that's not the point of peer support the point of peer support is to listen to allow a person for the first time maybe to share what they're struggling with then to share with them some of the positive experiences that you've had in moving forward and it's such an important skill, just as any kind of a friend. I can think of two people right off the bat that I'd never tell anything to that matters <laughs> because they always uh, uh, jump in and make it about themselves. And yeah. uh, so guess what? They don't get to hear the stuff anymore. <laughs> and they both say, hey, you know, you can always call me. No, 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 no. No, thank you. <laughs> Call me so I can hear you talk about how this affects you. (laughs) You know, it's not about you. (laughs) Yeah. So those are, those are three of the things. I mean, there's several other things as well. You know, like you said, you know, don't, don't, uh, 
you know, don't one up one up and ship, you know, if you think that's bad, you should hear what happened to so and so. Yeah. I just or, shared with I just shared with you the most traumatic event that ever happened in my life and you're telling me that I should hear what Mark has to say. Yeah. <laughs> or one of my personal favorites. Well, this happened to me and I'm fine, so what's your problem? Yeah. You know, and they might not use those exact words, but yeah. <laughs> that message gets said, Well, why are you injured? I'm not injured. I was there too. Yeah, and you know, this is a thing, uh, I've gotten into that conversation many times, and I, I use the example, you know, for example, uh, a traffic officer who's seen many deaths and broken bodies on the highways, and, uh, you know, has taken over 200 such events over their 30-year career and retires and said, I never got hurt on the job, um, you know, and I say, well, there go you, but by the grace of God. Because everybody's born with a capability and limits uh, within as to how much a person can take. And so we see somebody who's at their 10th traffic accident and suddenly they break down and cry and they fall on their knees and they're just sick and tired of looking at broken broken bodies. And the older guy comes along and says, ah, suck it up, buttercup. You know, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. And I'm still here fine. Well, you know, uh, again, it's not your it's not your mind. You know, you don't know what that person. Maybe that person watched their grandfather die at a traffic accident. Exactly. You don't know their story. You don't yeah. know. Two people can see the exact same thing and have two completely different experiences. You don't know what somebody's story is. You don't fucking know. And because you exactly. don't know, you don't know how it affects them. You just don't. You can't. Exactly. Uh, I, I have a, an officer who uh, retired finally from their police service who could no longer get in their car and drive anywhere without seeing dead bodies along the side of the road. He had taken so many accidents. Yeah. And he didn't want to share that with anybody. And it wasn't until after he retired and we met and chatted that he shared that with me and I thought what a terrible way to live uh, with not telling anybody that you know? and that's the power of what we're doing right here today this is worldwide peer support we're, we're having this conversation so anybody can tune in and you never know what nugget or what story that we're sharing in our conversation that somebody's going to relate to and go oh my god I thought I was the only one which is yeah. why it's not easy to be an open book, but I am an open book, and I have shared things on here that I couldn't even admit to my best friend until I was in my mid-40s, and, uh, and now I tell the whole world, <laughs> you know, because if yeah. I don't, then other people are going to think that they're crazy or that they're alone, and they're not. You know, and, and that's, a, that's such an important thing that you're sharing with regards to the fact that people think they're alone with all the experiences that we have today and with a number of us that are involved in the military uh, actions and deployments and police officers working throughout Canada and the United States and the world, you know, there's this, this feeling of being alone is only in the fact that we didn't connect. Being able to connect is where peer support is fabulous. Because, and going back to, I think it was Jill you were saying that indicated that uh, peer support was so important, or Kim? 
I can't remember the name. Oh, uh, Kim Barthel. Yeah, Kim sharing that peer support is extremely valuable. And it is because it's peer support and connecting with someone uh, of like mind, like experience, uh, that would allow a person to have that conversation if they know they're going to be listened to. We have a comment here from uh, Samantha Cowan. Great advice. Sid is wonderful. This is wonderful. Don't minimize and don't offer unsolicited advice. Don't personalize. This isn't your story. I loved how you impressed upon us that everyone is unique and individual and independent. This is real-world advice for all of us. Well, thanks, Samantha Cowan. That's a wonderful, wonderful comment on there. Oh, thank you. That's very nice, yeah. Um. Yeah, so uh, what's, what ne- what's next, Mark? I'm kind of at a blank mind here. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's what I'm here for. And, you know, we're at the 46-minute mark, but I could talk to you all damn days, Sid. You're a good dude. Um, we have covered a lot of good ones. Uh, how about the size of a peer support group? That's an interesting one. I know uh, when we do in-person peer support, we try to cap it at around uh, under 10 for sure. Yep. You know, uh, six to eight seems to be about ideal. But on the Zoom calls, uh, we're doing 12 and 16 and it seems fine. We're we're getting through. What What's your opinion? Well, I think at 12 to 16, you're hitting the, the boundary there where, you know, uh, peer support might not be as effective as it could be. Mm. Uh, I'm hearing today sometimes where people say, hey, we had 40 people show up yesterday you know, at our peer group meeting. I'm thinking, oh, my God, how does anybody get any help? You know, if, it's, if, you're, if you're just exchanging information, if you're just getting together for purposes of uh, exchanging psychotherapy information, psychological information, mental health information, then it doesn't matter what the group is because you're doing a presentation to a group of people that are interested in what you have to say. But if I'm going to a peer support meeting because I need to share a struggle that I'm going through uh, as of late, I need to, uh, to attend a peer group that has the time to listen to me. And if you get bigger than, you know, uh, I like the 8 to 10 number, 12 to 16 is push, pushing up, but I've done those. That's so okay, but it's a little bit longer. Uh, you have to have the time to listen to me. Otherwise, I'm not going to come to your peer meeting. I go there because you said to me that I would be able to get help in sharing my experiences uh, to feel better and to learn from all of you who have walked the path before me what it is that you did to help make you feel better. If you don't let me speak and if you don't have time to listen to me, why am I coming? So the number of people attending a peer support meeting has to be specific to the objective that the peer group has decided they're going to do. If it's just to give information and tell you what book they should read next, doesn't matter. But if it if it's oh, hang on, time out, you just froze up on to me. Allow, and, allow people to and to, you're back to, to speak. You froze up on me there for a second, but you're back. <laughs> I've lost you. I, 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 do you there hear me go. now? Oh, we're back. Yeah, I can hear you now. All yeah. right. Ah, technology. It's great when it works. <laughs> Um, now, one of the questions that uh, uh, is, how long should a person be in, in peer support? Is there a limit? 
So there is no there is no time limit to peer support. As far as I'm concerned, you 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 go through peer support as long as you feel that it's a benefit to you, and that you are also maybe a benefit to somebody else by sharing you know your positive growth and stuff. As long as you're value added, or you're getting value added to your life, then by all means. One thing that I will say, and I just want to share this with you, it's a little definition that I put together myself years ago. I'd like to just read it to you because I want to make sure I say it right, but I say this all the time. Peer support is a foundation piece through which lived experience connects with empathy. Mm. To those who have been traumatized and gets them to the help they need, whether it's medical or psychological, and supports them through the process of healing with reassurance and guidance, and once they're strong enough, lets them go without any obligation to the support that was offered. And that addresses the whole time thing. I have had people come to me that said, can I talk to you, can I talk to you, can I talk to you? And I've always listened. And they call me two or three times a week, sometimes two or three times a day. And then all of a sudden, they don't call me at all. And I meet them in the hallway somewhere, and you're doing okay? And they'll say, I'm doing fine. I just wanted to be reassured of that. Because the fact that you're not needing me anymore means that you're doing okay. So the time frame is very personal. I, 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 still, I still belong to Robin's Blue Circle, and it's been around for 33 years. Peer support is a gift, and if anything is a true gift, it shouldn't have strings. If it has strings, it's not a gift. That's right. So if you're expecting yeah. some quid pro quo, you know, then it's not a gift. Yep. Tell me about, um, you touched on 56 Seconds before. That was your first book. Uh, could you dig into that yeah. just a little bit more for me? Like, wh- what is what are we going to find in 56 Seconds? So 56 seconds is, I'm going to be blunt, it's an amateur's approach. It's an amateur's reveal. It was like, okay, how do I tell people that I suffered from, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder? How, how do I tell people that? And so I kind of, here's what I went through, and this is the reactions I had. None of it was, uh, none of it was connected with the DSM. Right, uh, five or four. I didn't even refer to that document. So really, it wasn't about how, how to come out sorry. of the PTSD closet. Yeah, it was. It's about love it. Here's you know, you know what what affected me was the media. <laughs> yeah, fuckers. And where is that in the DSM four? <laughs> Nobody cares in the DSM four about how you feel about the media. But I yeah. was very angry at the media. Sure. So I'm saying to myself. Does anybody else feel that way? And a lot of people feel that way. So 56 seconds is about a guy who says, I just want to share with you what I didn't like about having PTSD. What about walk the talk? What are the, what's the nuts and bolts of walk the talk? So that's an interesting one because Dr. Anna Baranowski, who runs the Traumatology Institute in Toronto, read 56 seconds and she called me up we had a little conversation and she said you know you missed a great opportunity to teach people some lessons <laughs> so i said oh okay she said why don't you rewrite it and this time you know like t- give some teaching points and so i think 
Walk the Talk has something like 23 teaching points written into it uh, for people to who are curious about PTSD and how to survive it. Uh, you know, here's some teaching points. And it actually became mandatory reading at Mohawk College for three years. Wow, that's in, something. In the, yeah, in the three-year mental health uh, nursing program. They actually have a workbook out of, that came out of Walk the Talk at the at the college. That that's got to feel that's got to feel good. It 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 does. It did. You know, when when I find out stuff like that, my wife always finds it funny because I always cry, <laughs> <laughs> and I cry I cry because I I feel like it. You know, it, all that pain is making somebody else feel better. Yeah, it's um, conti- continuing to serve and and yeah. and turning turning the injury, turning the the ugliness into something good. Making lemon out yeah. a lemonade or lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Now uh, the third book: How to Survive PTSD and Build Peer Support. How is that? Um, what are the nuts and bolts so that, of that one? That was actually the second book. How oh, that's the second. PTSD. Okay, that's the the teaching book. Walk the Talk was the third book. So what happened was Brad Mackay, who's a staff sergeant with York, uh, had spent years developing the formalized peer support and critical incident stress management team amongst five emergency services in York over the years. I was involved in the development of an informal peer support group that wasn't even supported by the organization for all of those years. And so we got invited on stage together to talk to about 300 administrators about what the difference was between formal and informal peer support and how it can all work together. And how do you pick peer support members? And how do you, uh, you know, build your peer support teams, et cetera? How do you manage all of that? So what happened after we did our presentation is the phone was ringing off the hook kind of thing. Uh, boy, I just aged myself there. I actually had a phone on a hook. But, uh, <laughs> hey, so did I. <laughs> yeah. So, But the phone ran off the hook uh, with the administrator saying, can you tell us more about your presentation? Because we, we, we're struggling with that. We need more information. So that's when Brad and I said, well, why don't we write a book called Walk the Talk? And it's about our presentation. And uh, so it, it it's not a book for people who are trying to figure out how to survive trauma. It's a book for people who are trying to bring wellness and peer support programs within their organization, how to do it, how to manage it so that it will work. Sid? Now we have another book coming out. Oh, tell me about this. So this book is called Slay the Toxic Dragon. Love it. And it's coming out, uh, it's at the editors now, and then it goes to the publishers, and we think it will come out August, September. And what it is, is uh, between Brad, myself, and Dr. Barbara Anschutz, who runs a trauma center in Aurora, Ontario, between the 102 years of experience we have, identifying toxic behavior within the workplace that have created uh, examples of sanctuary trauma, Mm. that people were not able to come back to work because of the toxic environments. Give me the definition of uh, sanctuary trauma because it's one of the most damaging types of trauma that I know of. It is. So sanctuary trauma is when you have this absolute belief that 
you can be in a place where you should feel safe and supported and validated. For many, it's their workplace where all of a sudden your workplace where you got traumatized is suddenly not there to support you, not there to validate your pain, your suffering, uh, but basically minimizing your value to the organization and not even validating the trauma you went through or accepting it as something that you should be dealing with and not willing to. So people can't come back to work because the sanctuary that they thought they had is actually traumatizing them more than the event itself because the event itself was something that you didn't plan and you had no control over. You just did what you had to do. But when people attack you in a place where you're supposed to feel safe, that's intentional. And it's painful to, to put up with. The scary part is, is that we, we oftentimes attribute sanctuary trauma with just the workplace. Sanctuary trauma can also happen at home. Where if the family is not, and this is why we say to organizations, you need to include family members in education uh, in terms of what the signs and symptoms of a traumatic uh, behavior will be. Because suddenly the spouse is sitting on the couch and can't get up because they're so depressed. They can't, they have no energy. They have no get up and go. And the family is saying, what the hell's the matter with you? Get to work, do something about it. So now you don't want to go home because you're suffering from the sanctuary uh, being compromised in terms of safety at home. I've seen guys just not come home and well, families break up because of sanctuary trauma acted out at home as well. It also happens in therapy occasionally, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, I've yeah. experienced it. And, in, and it also happens in peer support uh, where you're expecting, it's like, okay, here's, here's the safe place to land. And yeah. the peer support wasn't done right. You break one of the rules of peer support and it wasn't a safe place to land. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need to really recognize that sanctuary trauma can be one of the most devastating. And as you, as you, you said right in your, your question, it can re- really be one of the most devastating things to happen to somebody. I've had so many officers who tried their best to put that first foot in the front door to get back to work. And right away, the sergeant would walk by and say something stupid like, well, it's about fucking time you show up. And they walked right back out again and were never able to go back and ended up having to file a human rights complaint because they can't even find the courage to walk through the door anymore. Yeah. And courage is what it takes sometimes. Uh, Anytime reaching out for help, going to a peer support group, whatever the whatever the modality is of help it that's why it takes courage <laughs> we're terrified of sanctuary trauma at at least at some level and we're also we're the ones that wear the capes and the ones that yeah. wear the capes we don't want to admit that sometimes we need help too that's one of the bigger challenges that's right and you know you make up you make a good point there uh mark in terms of uh, even going to a peer support meeting the number of times i've uh gone to someone's home and met them at the door in my car and drove them to the peer support meeting because they were afraid to come for the first time by themselves 
and I would walk them in with me uh, to the peer support meeting, and I'd have them sit right beside me so that everybody knew that person was with me. Yeah. And it just created that safety for them. It's not easy to be vulnerable. It really, really isn't. No. And that is a big part of this show, Sid. You know, uh, they hear me being vulnerable. They hear people like yourself who have the courage to be vulnerable. And it gives them the courage, through example, to be vulnerable. And um, and that's really the only way to heal. Yeah. Sid, thank you so much for uh, making time to be on the show today. And the first time with my fancy new graphics. (laughs) So I appreciate that. And um, uh, please stay on the line. All right, thank you. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. everybody thanks for tuning in now i've got a favor to ask you and i know everybody asks for the same favor but it's really really important if you can help do your little bit by going to apple podcasts leaving a rating and a comment that would be awesome also on your favorite podcast platform whether that be spotify anchor google podcasts or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back please click follow and if there's an option there for rating please do so and this is why every time you click like leave a rating leave a comment what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast the help that you can't find doesn't help at all so help other people find this so that they can help themselves thank you thank you thank you and as always share share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring Thank you.